Hey, good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us today, all of you who are here uh, in person, out in the lobby, under the tent, or all of you who are watching online. And I'm really excited today to be able to wrap up our series, God versus Satan, which we've been in now for 11 weeks, if you can be believe that. It's been 11 weeks. And uh, I actually wish that we had two more weeks because there's so much more material to cover, but we're backed up right against Christmas, so I'm going to wrap it up today. And for those of you who've been with us, I, I hope that this series has helped to enlighten you a little bit on who our enemy is and what he's up to, some of the playbooks and, and how you can um, inter or engage him in battle. And uh, if you missed any part of it, I just want to say to you that you can go to our uh, YouTube channel, SBCC Live, and catch all of the messages there. And you can also, if you didn't know this, you can also uh, listen to our messages on a podcast. So just go to Google Podcast, for example, and enter SBCC Live, and then you can listen to the messages, uh, for example, while you're driving your car instead of having to actually watch it. So I want to encourage you to do that. Now, at various points along the way, I have told you that the story of the devil ends well, not for him, but for us, because in a nutshell, we win and he loses, Satan loses. And that's what I want to tell you about today, uh, that Satan loses. Now, we have a lot to cover, and so I want to get right to it. So grab a Bible and a pad of paper, if you have, so you can take some notes. And then I want to, I want to begin by praying, first of all. And there was a, there's a couple of prayer requests I want to bring to your attention. First of all, Will you keep uh, Sharon Kawashiri, continue to keep him in your prayers? She, she had a health crisis a couple of weeks ago, just really came out of nowhere, and uh, we're so thankful that she is much improved today but, and is on the road to recover, we, we believe. So, but continue to keep her in your prayers. also want to ask you uh, to pray for Sahar. That is the name of the young lady that we received uh, more than a month ago, probably six weeks ago now, she came from Afghanistan and had to flee there, had to leave her husband and two children there, and she had to flee. And God has really been working on her heart in a, in a major way, and we're so thankful for that. And she was actually going to come to church uh, today, and I don't believe she, she did because a few nights ago she received a call uh, informing her that her mother uh, passed away. And it was a very tragic, uh, unexpected um, event for her. And she has been absolutely distraught, as you can imagine. Uh, there's no way that she can get back there to see her mom one last time. And she's gone, and it is just absolutely gut-wrenching. Cheryl has been with her a little bit, and um, she's just uh, reeling from this loss. So p please pray for Sahar, that God would work in her heart and bring comfort to her. And then keep in prayer the folks that were affected by these, I think they were saying 22 tornadoes that ripped through the heartland of our country, Arkansas, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, Missouri. A lot of people were killed. Here, here we are two weeks out of Christmas, so please keep them in your prayers as well, okay? So let's begin. Uh, by turning to the Lord, by looking to the Lord, and then we'll, we'll open up God's word uh, for today's message. Well, Father, thank you so much um, for, for gathering us here together today. 
Father, I, again, I, I keep saying it, but there's, to me, there's no place uh, I'd rather be than at church here uh, on a Sunday morning. And I thank you, God, so much for the opportunity today to be here. And Lord, as we gather, we want to remember all those folks that were affected by these, um, these destructive tornadoes that ripped through our country yesterday. And uh, Father, I, I've, I've heard of churches that were completely demolished and this, and there, there isn't a place for, for those people to meet today. And Father, we want to remember them and all those uh, families that lost loved ones. God, that you would bring healing and comfort to them. And, and I pray, God, that, that in many ways, uh, the church and, and others would come together to rally around these people who have suffered so much loss. And, and Father, we want to not only remember them, but we want to remember Sahar. God, I, we can't even imagine. We thank you so much for the opportunity you've given our church to love on her. And Father, she has experienced so much heartbreak here in the last few months, just being separated from her small children and her husband, having to leave her country and her home, and then now have to having lost her mother. We, we pray, God, for your Holy Spirit to work in her heart and bring comfort to her and healing to her. And God, help her and all those around her to begin to sort through all the things uh, in her life that just need that just need your touch. And Father, um, we lift up Sharon to you. God, thank you so much that she is making huge improvements. And we ask God for your continued healing hand to be upon her. God, bring her, give her healing that is 100%, God, so that she can get back to, uh, to, to doing all things that she loves to do, serving you, serving her family, serving the church. So thank you, Father, for again this morning. We have a lot to cover. And I'm excited, God, as we wrap this series up. But Lord, I pray more than anything else that today, I pray that you would be lifted up. I pray that you would be magnified. I pray that you would be glorified because you are worthy. There's no one like you. So speak to us today. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on April the 15th, 1945, this young man, Yoshiaki Ono, wrote a letter to his father and mother and sister. Here's what he wrote to them. Dear father, mother, and sister, thank you for everything you did during my lifetime. Now I have been chosen to go to Okinawa to make a decisive counterattack against our hated enemies, the Americans. When I reflect back, my life only has been full of wonderful memories. During the 18 years of my life, by the love of you, father and mother, I can give my short 18 years as a member of the Special Attack Force of the Skies. Truly, I cannot suppress this long-cherished desire. In spite of facing death in air battles off Taiwan, I shamelessly survived and truly apologized to my comrades who died before me. Now at last, I will have a splendid place to die so I can apologize to my comrades and to you, father and mother. Without any regrets, I can go to crash into an enemy ship. As I write this letter of final farewell, I say goodbye to this life. Please take care. Father, mother, and sister, I wish you the best. Signed, Yoshiaki. By all accounts, Yoshiaki Ono died the very next day. Ono was part of a special group called the Japanese Special Attack Force which was made up of young pilots whose mission it was to crash their aircraft loaded with bombs into enemy positions, specifically American ships. The pilots and these attackers were given the name kamikaze, which means divine wind. 
Here's an actual photo of a kamikaze attack on an American ship during World War II. And then this is a photo of the U.S. aircraft carrier Bunker Hill after it was hit by two kamikaze planes within 30 seconds of each other during the Battle of Okinawa. According to one estimate, roughly 7,500 Japanese suicide pilots flew to their deaths during World War II. 120 American ships were sunk and more than 7,000 naval personnel were killed by these kamikaze attacks. There wasn't anything, according to Admiral William Halsey, there wasn't anything that the Americans feared more than a kamikaze attack because there was no way to defend, of it, defend it. Now here's what I want you to know. The kamikaze attacks didn't begin until October 1944, nearly three years after the war started. It was only after Japan realized that they were losing the war that they resorted to these kamikaze attacks because they realized, when they were, realized they were losing, they came to the realization that their backs were up against the wall, they were desperate, they were down on the count, they were backed into a corner. It reminds me of an insight that Chinese general and military strategist Sun Tzu shared in his book, The Art of War. He said in his book, and I'll paraphrase him, never back your enemy into the corner. Never back him into a corner, and if you do, always leave an outlet for him to escape. Because if you don't, if you back your enemy into a corner and if he doesn't have a way of escape, he will, your enemy will, like a wild animal that is backed into a corner, fight back with a ferocity that you could have never imagined. And that's exactly what the Japanese did. And that's exactly what Satan is going to do as well. In Revelation 12, 12, the Apostle John wrote this. Revelation was written by the Apostle John. Verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. John wrote that the devil knows that his time is short. He knows that his days are numbered. He knows that he's going to be backed into a corner. He knows that he's going down. Therefore, in these last days, we will see him at his worst. We will see the devil at his worst. And today, I want to show you what he's going to do. Let me first set the table for you by giving you a history of the devil as illustrated by these tiles. The first tile is represent, represents how the devil got started. We talked about this in the very first message. I've titled it Satan in Heaven. You might recall that this is where it all began. It all began in heaven. Before Satan became the devil, he was one of God's holy angels. And then he rebelled against God because he wanted to be God. And we see this in Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 15, and also in Revelation 12, verse 7 through 9. And when he rebelled against God, he recruited a third of all the angels in heaven to join him in the rebellion against God. And they lost, to make a long story short, they lost and... <clears throat> And God cast them out of heaven down to earth. That leads to the second tile. Satan is on the earth. Now he is on the earth. And the first place he shows up is in the Garden of Eden, 
where he successfully tempted Eve, which led to the fall of man. And then from Genesis all the way to Malachi in the entire Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, Satan and his demons are at work and they do nothing but cause trouble, deceiving and lying and murdering and distorting the truth and attacking everyone and anything that God loves, most notably the Jewish people in the nation of Israel who were God's chosen people. And then God sent his one and only son to planet earth. And that's the third tile. Jesus is on the earth. And it all begins at Christmas, which we're going to celebrate next week. Jesus was born. And the reason Jesus was born was so that he could redeem man by dying on a cross for our sins. And after Christ died, God raised him from the dead. And all this is laid out for us in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we've run through the Old Testament, and now we're in the first four books of the, Old, of the New Testament, the Gospels. And then, 50, day, 50 days after Christ's resurrection on the day of Pentecost, the church is born. And that's the fourth tile. The church is now on the earth. And the church is made up of God's redeemed people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And that the story of the church begins in Acts chapter 2 and continues all the way through Revelation chapter 3. There is no mention of the church after Revelation chapter 3. No mention of it in Revelation 4, 5, and 6 and all the way to the end. So the story of the church goes from Acts 2 to Revelation 3. And this is where we are today. This is where we've been for the last 2,000 years. We are living right now in this fourth tile. And then one day, the church age is going to come to a close. It's going to come to an end with a rapture. And that's recorded for us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, when Jesus comes down from heaven and he takes all those who believe in him, takes all those who've died, takes them first, and then all those who are alive, he takes us up into heaven to be with him. And uh, this is the fifth tile. That takes us to the fifth tile. And that is the church will then end up in heaven. We will be in heaven. And I want you to know that the rapture could happen at any moment. It could happen at any time. It could happen this week. It could happen next week. It could happen at the end of the year. It, it also may not happen for 50 years. I believe that it's going to happen soon. That's just my personal belief. But once the church is lifted up off this rock, we will all be in heaven. And imagine this. There will not be a single Christian on planet Earth the moment the rapture occurs. So all those people with whom the Holy, in whom the Holy Spirit is living will all be gone, right? And once all the Christians on earth are taken up, all hell will break loose on earth. You think things are bad now. When Christians are gone, all hell is going to break loose. And so that leads us to the sixth tile. The sixth tile is this. Satan will still be on the earth. Christians will be gone. The church will be taken up, but Satan will still be on this earth. Now this sixth tile... This period after the rapture will last for seven years. It will last for seven years. And the Bible refers to these seven years as the tribulation period. And it's spelled out for us in many passages throughout the scriptures, but most notably in Revelation chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19. And then the last half of the seven-year tribulation period is referred to as the great tribulation because that's when things will go from bad to worse. Now, the focus of today's message is what happens during this sixth tile. What happens during these seven years, right? The moment the tribulation period begins, Satan will know 
that he has seven years left. He knows he will have seven years left. He knows that he will be backed into a corner and he and all of his demons, because they know they have only seven years left before they will be destroyed during this period, they will unleash their final fury upon the earth. Now let me give you seven facts about the great tribulation period. And these are gonna be very, very quick, but these are important. Kind of a setup, it's kind of a background for today's message. Number one, there will be Christians in the great tribulation period or in the tribulation period. There will be Christ followers, right? There will be Christ followers in the tribulation period. There won't be any Christ followers at the very beginning of it because all Christ followers will be taken up by the rapture. We will be with the Lord in heaven. But as time goes on, as time goes on during these seven years, multitudes of people will begin to turn to Jesus and follow Jesus. Revelation 13, 7, I'll put it up here for you, says, also, the it here refers to the Antichrist. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints. This is a verse that refers to this seven years. And the Antichrist is going to make war on the saints. That word, I highlighted it, that word saints tells us that there will be Christians during the Great Tribulation. Again, not at the beginning, but slowly as time goes on. Second, the Antichrist will rule the world. Again, Revelation 13, 7, the last half of that says, an authority was given it, given to the Antichrist over every tribe and people and language and nation. And so the Antichrist will become the ruler of the world. He will be a political leader. He will establish a one world government and a one world economy. Number three, the Antichrist will be an agent of Satan and he will be worshiped. Revelation 13, 4 says, and they worship the beast or they worship the Antichrist. And then number four, the beast or the Antichrist will blaspheme God. He will blaspheme God. Revelation 13, verse 6 says, and it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. And then number five, the Antichrist will hunt down and kill Christians. Uh, he will hunt down and kill Christians, Revelation 13, 7 says, and it was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So, and then finally, number six, or there's actually two more, number six, the Antichrist will perform miracles. The Antichrist will perform miracles. Second Thessalonians 2, 9 says the coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, is, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And so the beast will be given these extraordinary powers by the devil. And the beast will have, this man will have the ability to perform miracles. And that's why billions of people will follow him and billions of people will worship him. And during this seven-year period, it would be a period of unprecedented lawlessness and spiritual darkness will literally envelop the entire planet. Finally, number seven, this is your last one. The Antichrist will lead an attack against Israel at Armageddon, lead an attack against Israel. Revelation 16, verse 14, just the last part says that demons gather, will assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then verse 16 says, and they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And so when we were in Israel, we had a chance to go to this place. It's called Megiddo. We saw this vast plain. I think I've shown you pictures of it. When our team goes again, 
when our uh, mission goes again in um, April, we'll be able to see it, but that's where the battle will commence. And of course, there's a whole lot more, right? There's a whole lot more, and, uh, but these are just seven things I want you to know about the seven-year period. So I'll put the whole thing up here for you very quickly. If you want to take a picture of it, those are the seven things that you need to know about the Great Tribulation period that uh, is a setup for what I want to talk about today. All right, so Tina, if you could put up the tiles again. All right, we have the tiles. All that the devil has ever wanted to do since the very beginning when he was in heaven was to be God. That's all that the devil has ever wanted to be, and he wanted to be God. And then from the moment he was cast down until now, that would be tiles two through four, all he has ever done is to fight God. All he has ever done is to attack everyone and everything that God loves, his creation, his people, the Jews, his word, his church. That's all he's been doing. And you would think that after the church is taken up, that's tile number five, that the devil would have let up on the accelerator, but nothing could be further from the truth. After the church is taken up, the devil will double down because he's still on the earth and he knows he's backed into a corner. And so when we come to tile number six, his fight will become even more fierce and ferocious than ever before. Let me show you what he's going to do. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. Turn to Revelation 5. Here's what Revelation 5 says. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. All right, let me explain what's going on here. This verse depicts Almighty God sitting on his throne in heaven. This is Almighty God sitting on a throne in heaven. And in his hand, he is holding a scroll. He's holding a scroll that is sealed with seven seals. The Greek word for scroll is biblion. Biblion is where we get the word bibliography. But a biblion back then was a rolled up papyrus or animal skin with writing on both sides. And it was sealed with seven wax seals. And the seals functioned like signatures. They were there to authenticate the document. It might have looked something like this. Now jump down to verse 7, Revelation 5, 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Let me explain what this is. In this verse, Jesus goes to God the Father. He goes to God the Father who's sitting on the throne and he takes the scroll that he is holding, takes it from his hand and takes it and walks away. That's what's going on here, right? Jesus goes over to God and takes the scroll from him. And right after he takes the scroll, the scriptures tell us that the angels in heaven and 24 elders, and we're not sure who they are, but the angels in heaven begin to sing Worthy are you to take the scrolls. They break out in song. Take a look at verse 9, Revelation 5, 9. And it says, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you transformed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then they start to sing, Worthy are you, Lord. Worthy are you. Because Jesus is the only one worthy to take the scroll and open it up. And I'll, get, I'll explain that in just a second. And then, starting in the very next chapter, Jesus begins to open the scroll one seal at a time. One seal at a time. 
And every time he cracks open another seal, it reveals the judgment of God against wickedness. Stated another way, the scene in Revelation 5 is that of a courtroom in which God is sitting on the front seat. He's sitting on his throne. And the scroll represents his final verdict against evil. And the only one who is worthy to read the verdict, the only one who is worthy to take the scroll and read the verdict is Jesus. Because Jesus died on a cross for our sins. Because Jesus was condemned on a cross for man's sins. Because Jesus was the Lamb of God. Because Jesus was perfect. Because he was the root of David. Because he was the Lion of Judah. Because he is the Alpha and the Omega. And he is the only one worthy to take that scroll and open it up and read the verdict that God has pronounced upon man. Now, I don't have to tell you, I don't have time to tell you everything that is in the scroll. But if you know, want to know what's in it with a lot of explanations, I want to encourage you to check our series out that we did back in 2016. Pastor Greg and I uh, taught through the book of Revelation in 2016. And we laid it all out for you, explained everything that's going on here and uh, if, you, if you want to go back, and you can just check it out at our YouTube channel, SBCC Live. Look for Revelation, and it's all there. But when we get to Revelation chapter 8, the seventh and final seal is opened by Jesus. All right, the seventh and final seal. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read it to you, but I'm just going to tell you what's in it. All right? Stay with me, because this is going to blow your mind. Right? When the seventh and final seal is opened, it reveals seven angels holding seven trumpets, all right? The seventh seal reveals seven angels who are holding seven trumpets. And then, one at a time, the angels begin to blow their trumpets. Here's a, a statue of an angel blowing a trumpet. I don't believe it's going to look like this. Probably, the trumpet is going to look more like this, a ram's horn. They don't have brass trumpets back then, but they had ram's horns, which is what they blew. And each time an angel blows the ram's horn, the trumpet, one more, one of God's uh, judgments will be revealed, right? For example, after the first trumpet is blown, and I'm not going to read the verses for you. I'll let you do that yourself. It's all in Revelation 8. But after the first trumpet is blown, it says that hail and, hail and fire mixed with blood are thrown down to earth. And a third of the earth and trees are burned up and all the grass is burned up. And then after the second trumpet is blown, what appears to be a great mountain burning with fire is thrown into the sea, probably an asteroid or a meteor. And then a third of the sea is turned to blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea are killed. And then after the third trumpet is blown, a great star like a blazing torch, it says, falls to earth, quite possibly a comet, and it poisons the rivers and all the drinking waters. And then after the fourth trumpet is blown, the sun, moon, and stars are struck with a plague and the world plunges into darkness and cold. It's all found in Revelation chapter 8. After the first four trumpets are blown, we have nothing short of an ecological catastrophe that makes climate change look like child's play. The earth will literally be obliterated. That brings us to Revelation chapter 9 when the fifth angel blows his trumpet. Take a look at Revelation 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. 
right? In this verse, the apostle John also saw another star. But this star wasn't a meteor. This wasn't a star or an asteroid that crashed into the earth. If you look closely at the verse, the star is referred to by the pronoun he. This star is a he. And notice it says the star had fallen from heaven. The word fallen is in the perfect tense form, which means that the star fell sometime in the past, but it continues to have repercussions today. That's the idea of a perfect tense verb. It fell in the past, but it has repercussions today. And I think you know who the star is because we studied it in the very first message it's the devil. In Isaiah 14, 12, Satan was called Daystar or Halal. And then when he rebelled against God, he fell from heaven. God cast him out of heaven. And his fallen state continues to have repercussions for us even today. What Revelation 9, 1 is telling us is that after the fifth trumpet is blown, probably in the last half of the great tribulation period, the devil is going to be handed the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, the Greek word for bottomless is abusos, which is where we get the word abyss, right? The abyss in the scriptures was a prison for demons. It was where demons were incarcerated. It's where demons were bound. It was such a terrible place that the demons Jesus encountered during his ministry begged him not to send them there. Verse Luke, Luke chapter 8, verse 31 says, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Jesus, don't send us to the abyss. Whatever you do, don't send us there. It was such a horrible place. They didn't want to go there. Now, FYI, the abyss is not the same as hell. Not the same place. The abyss is a prison, and there aren't any verses that I could find that indicate that the abyss was a place of torment and suffering. You certainly want, don't want to be in the abyss with a bunch of demons, but, it, but this wasn't hell. Hell is a place of suffering and torment, and Jesus described hell as a fiery furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So all this to say, the devil is given the key to the abyss. Now here's what he's going to do with that key. Revelation 9, verse 2. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. All right, so the devil is going to take the key, open up the shaft, or open up the shaft of the bottomless pit. He's going to open up the abyss. And here's what happens when he does. Verse 3. And then... From the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, and their faces were like human faces. 
Verse 8, their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And they have tails and stings and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he is called Apollyon. This is chilling. This is chilling. Satan is going to get the key to the abyss and he's going to open the door to the abyss and when he does, thousands, perhaps millions, perhaps even billions of demons are going to come pouring out of the earth and onto the earth and they will be hideous in their appearance and merciless in their deeds. John compares them to locusts because there will be so many of them and they will swarm the earth. They will sting like scorpions. They will inflict unimaginable physical pain. They will have faces like humans. They will look like people. They will have teeth like lions, which they can use to shred the flesh of humans. And for five months, they will torment and torture everyone on the earth. And the pain and the agony will be so bad that people will want to die, but they can't die. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but that description right there, the people will be in such pain that they want to die, but they can't die. That description right there is the description of heaven. Or, excuse me, that's the description of hell. Because in hell, hell will be so bad that you will wish that you were dead, that you will want to die, but there's no way you can die. You can't die, and that's hell. You might remember that in one of my earlier messages, I showed you that there are two types of demons. There are demons that are bound and there are demons that are loose. There are demons that are loose on the earth today and then there are demons that are bound. And the ones that are bound are bound because they are the worst of the worst. They are the worst of the, of the worst. And they, um, they are beyond the pale. If you can believe that demons can be on the pale, but they are beyond the pale uh, because they're so wicked and so ferocious and, and, and they exceeded the boundaries that God gave to them. And so they are bound. Well, in Revelation chapter 9, the devil turns them all loose. He turns them all loose. All those that have been bound, he turns them loose. And they go berserk. They go berserk on planet Earth. And they unleash a fury on mankind un unlike anything we have ever seen or ever will see because they know they have been backed into a corner. They've got seven years. And just when you think it can't get any worse, the sixth angel blows his trumpet and after the sixth angel blows his trumpet, four more demons are released. And these are worse than the ones that come out of the abyss. Revelation 9.15 says, So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. These final four demons will come out and kill a third of mankind. According to verse 18, which I'm not going to read for you, but in verse 18 it says these four demons breathe fire and smoke and sulfur. It comes out of their mouths and it kills anyone it comes in contact with. Imagine a third of the earth's population wiped out by four powerful demons. I'm guessing that that would be in the neighborhood of a billion and a half to two billion people. We thought we lost a lot of people during COVID. Imagine a billion and a half to two billion people being killed at the hands of these four demons. Begs the question, why does God allow this? Why does God allow this? 
Well, the last two verses in chapter 9 give us a clue as to why God allows this. Revelation 9.20 says, And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or the sexual immorality or their thefts. You can stop right there. First of all, in this passage, John affirms that not everyone is killed by these four demons, right? That's true, right? Only a third of the population is killed, but two-thirds are not. Two-thirds are left alive. And he said they are killed by plagues. But see, here's what I want you to know. We, as soon as, when we hear the word plagues, we think of the black plague. Or we think, we might even th- you might even think of COVID as a plague. It's some, some kind of a disease. But in actuality, that's not, not, that's not what a plague is here. In the Greek, the word plague refers to afflictions or beatings, not to a COVID-type plague. The point is one-third of humanity will be wiped out by afflictions and beatings brought on by these four demons. And those who aren't killed will continue. Here's the thing. Those who aren't killed will refuse to repent of their deeds. They will refuse to repent of their deeds. They won't, they won't stop worshiping demons. And they won't stop worshiping idols. And they won't stop killing people. They won't stop engaging in sorcery. sorcery. They won't stop engaging in sexual immorality. And they won't stop stealing. And the implication is this is why God allowed Satan to unleash his horror in the first place. Because people were up to their noses and up to their heads in wickedness. And so God allowed these demons to go out into the world to afflict people as a form of God's judgment. You know, when I observe what's happening in our country and world today, I can't help but think that we are on a fast track to the end. There's things to be, seem to be getting worse, not by the year, but things seem to be getting worse by the week and by the day. Not simply because of a coronavirus, but because of the increase in lawlessness and the increase in hate the increase in murders and the increase in sexual immorality, the increase in drug use, the increase in greed and the increase in selfishness, the increase in pride, and the increase in godlessness and evil that we see in the world today, the increase in apostasy where people are turning away from the church and they're turning away from God altogether. And here's the thing. Considering who's in charge of the world today, who's in charge of the world today? It's the devil, right? He's the prince of this world. He's the god of this age. Considering who's in charge of the world today, what I find most surprising, you know what I find most surprising? I'm surprised that things aren't worse than they are. I'm surprised that things aren't worse than they are, considering who is pulling the strings. Why is it that things aren't worse than they are, considering who's pulling the strings? Is Satan on vacation? Is is the devil waiting for the tribulation to begin before he ramps things up? I don't think so. I believe the only reason why things aren't worse than they are today is because God has put a lid on Satan's activities. He has put a lid on it. He's restricting some of the actions of these demons. He's keeping them from doing all that they want to do. He's keeping them from doing that. God has even gone to the point of imprisoning some of the worst of the demons. Remember Job, how Satan wanted to have Adam? Just let me have Adam, God. I'll show you what he's made of. Just let me have Adam. And God, but God said, okay, but he, he wouldn't give him unfettered access. God put a lid, and, and the devil didn't like it. Here's, here's, what he, here's what the devil said to God in Job 1, verse 10. Have you not put a hedge around him? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? 
You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. See, God put a hedge of protection around Job. The word hedge in Hebrew means fence up. It means fence up. He put a fence up around Job. And as bad as things got for Job, it could have been much worse had God not put that hedge up around him. You know, one of the things that you can pray in this spiritual warfare that we're engaged in, one of the things that you can pray is, God, put a hedge of protection around me. God, put a hedge of protection around my marriage. God, put a hedge of protection around my children. God, put a hedge of protection around my church. God, put a hedge of protection around my friends. Protect us, Lord. And just as God put a hedge of protection around Job, he's going to do it again when all those demons come charging out of the bottomless pit. Take a look at Revelation 9.4. We read it, but I'll read it to you one more time. It says, and they were told not to harm. These demons were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. This is so good, isn't it? God's an environmentalist. God loves the green grass and the trees. And he told them, you can't harm those things. You can't touch those things. We can only go after those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, even during this time, God told the demons, you can't touch my people. You can't touch my people. You can only go after those who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, you can only go after those who don't believe in me, who don't have any faith in me. At the end of the day, this reminds me that at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is that you believe in God, right? The only thing that matters is that you belong to God. The only thing that matters is that you're a child of his. And if, and if you are, if you've repented of your sins, if you've trusted in Jesus, then you, you have nothing to worry about because God will put his hedge of protection around you. It doesn't mean that your life will be trouble-free and it doesn't mean that demons won't go after you. You'll certainly be harassed. I certainly have and I know most of you have. We'll certainly have trouble in this life, but God will always be with us. How good it is to know that our God is greater than all the forces of evil that are out there today. How good it is to know that God is greater. How great is our God? So how does the story of Satan end? Well, let me tell you. In one last ditch kamikaze-style attempt, the devil's surrogate, the Antichrist, will bring all the armies of the world together to attack Israel. We looked at that just a moment ago. And not only will the enemies of God gather to attack Israel, this is, this is crazy, when they realize that the Lord Jesus himself is going to personally intervene, they will focus their crosshairs on him. This is insane. They're going to focus their crosshairs on him. Take a look at Revelation 19, verse 19. John wrote, And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth, where their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. They're, they're going to, they have the audacity to think that they could fight Jesus. They have the audacity to think that they could defeat him in war. I mean, this is laughable. This is one of the funniest verses in the Bible. And without breaking a sweat, without even breaking a sweat, the very next verse tells us the Antichrist, that, it, that the Antichrist and his sidekick, the false prophet, will be captured and thrown in the lake of fire, which is hell. Verse 20 says, And these two were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. It's just kind of like, it wasn't even a contest. It, it wasn't even a problem. It's like, you're gone, you're out, you're down, 
You're gone. You're defeated. That's it. And with a simple word, they're vanquished. And then Revelation 20 tells us that the devil himself will be bound and thrown in the abyss for a thousand years. Okay, listen to this verse. Okay, listen to this verse and see if you catch what, I'm, what I caught. Revelation 20, verse 2. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. In this passage, this passage contains one of the greatest mysteries that has confounded pastors and Bible teachers for centuries. After a thousand years, the devil is going to be released. And he's not thrown into hell. He's thrown into the abyss. He's thrown into prison for a thousand years. Why must the devil be released? I'll tell you the answer. The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And we can speculate all day long and all kinds of people, a lot smarter than me, have been speculating about all these ideas. Well, maybe it's this and maybe it's that. But I think the, pro the, the real answer is nobody really knows because it doesn't say specifically in the scriptures why God does this. But he is released after a thousand years. He's in the abyss. He's in prison for a thousand years. He's released, released after a thousand years and after he's released, he will make one last failed attempt to take over things, and that will fail miserably. And finally, the devil will get his due. Revelation 20, verse 10 says this, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur with a beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Finally, Satan is cast into hell. And that's your final tile. That's your seventh tile. Satan will be in hell. And that's how it ends, right? Now, I don't know what you're thinking, but I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, when this happens, I'm thinking, it's about time, right? It's about time. But I also have a bunch of questions, like, God, why didn't you do this sooner? You could have saved us so much misery. God, why didn't you send him directly to hell after he rebelled against you in heaven? I mean, why are you sending them to the abyss in the first place? Just send them straight to hell. That's what I do. And again, the answer is, we don't know why. We don't know why God is taking this route. You know, in, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of situations where we don't have answers, I think the more important question is this. Will you trust God? Are you willing to trust God even when you don't have answers? Are you willing to trust God even when you don't understand his ways? Are you willing to trust God even when you don't get what's going on to you? You know, in these last few weeks, I've heard some really gut-wrenching stories of what some people are going through, some even in our own church. There's some people in our church who are just, it's just like one thing after the other, 
one thing after the other and one thing after the other. It's as if there's no let up. For example, this is Amber Holmes and her, and her, her mom, Gaylene. Amber gave us permission to share this story. But last August, just this last summer, uh, an MRI and a CT scan revealed that she had a mass on her right sciatic nerve. Doctors said they've never seen anything like it, never seen anything like that. And she's been in so much pain. And she's been living with so much uncertainty because she has gone from doctor to doctor to doctor, from hospital, 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 and, and everyone says, well, we've, we don't know what to do with that. We don't know what to do with that. We don't, we don't even want... Her, her, the nature of her case is so complicated the hospitals up, up, up until this point have been unwilling to perform even a biopsy. Oh, they, we don't even want to touch that. And she has been sent away from some of the, the best cancer hospitals in the country. Finally, Cedars-Sinai, which is out of network for her insurance, agreed to do the biopsy, and it's going to be done this Friday. But it's out of network, and, uh, which means she has to pay for it. So we started praying, you know, God... Get the insurance company to pay, to, to pay for this. And then she had, a, had to have some other things checked out, some biopsies and thyroid and other places. And she got the results this week, and it all came back negative. And then this week we found out that the insurance company said they would pay for the biopsy. So we, we praise the Lord for that. But, you know, Amber's a young mom, and, and she's just been going through the ringer. And her parents, I mean, you know, your, your kid is your kid no matter how old they get. Right? And, and I know that Toy and, and Galen are just in anguish over what their daughter is going through. And are they willing to trust God even when they don't know what the future holds? Yeah, they are. I think of uh, just this week, uh, one of the New Hope pastors, Alex Michelle, 51 years old, was jogging on Oahu somewhere. And a mo motorcyclist was driving an electric motorcycle, I understand hit and killed him. 51-year-old pastor, two weeks before Christmas, gone. And now, how does the church go on? How does, how does his family go on? Right? Are, are you willing to trust God even when you don't understand God's ways? Recently, I learned about a 27-year-old man named Kyle whose story has been reported in a number of media outlets, and I'm, so that's why I'm gonna share it because it's been, it's been out there in the public. But in early September, his father contracted COVID in Hawaii. The family's from Hawaii. Around the same time, Kyle, who was living in Texas, he got COVID. He tested positive. And in the condition of both the father and son, you know, here they are worlds apart, and they both got COVID, and they, and, and they, just, they just got worse and worse and worse. Kyle got so bad that his mom had to rush to his side in Texas. And I, I'm not sure of the timing of this, but then the father passed away. And um, Kyle's situation got to the point, he, his health deteriorated to the point where his lungs had been irreparably damaged. And so just recently, and this is him, he was just transferred to UC San Diego Medical Center in the hopes that he can get a double lung transplant. And um, this is a family of faith. Their daughter is one of Natalie's classmates at Pepperdine. And she was here at church last week. They face a very uncertain future, a mountain of uncertainty financially, emotionally, 
physically. Please pray for them. Please pray that Kyle would be able to get his lung transplant. I mean, let me ask you, if you were them, would you still be able to trust God even when you don't know how things are going to turn out? Will you trust God even when you don't have any of the answers? Can you trust God even when things, your prayers aren't being answered in the way that you'd like them to? You know, as I get older, I find myself getting more philosophical in the sense that I've come to accept that life is hard and that our world is broken and it seems that life gets harder and harder by the day. And the devil is doing whatever he can to mess our lives up. And it's in situations like this, I take so much comfort in knowing, I take so much comfort in knowing that when I don't understand what's going on around me, that God is still in control. I take so much comfort in knowing that God is still great. I take comfort in knowing that even when I don't understand the scriptures and I don't understand why God would do this or why he would do that, I still take comfort in knowing that in the end, we win. We win. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what how you're faring in this battle against an unseen enemy. Maybe what you're going through is just like, it's just nonstop. It's over and over and over, and it doesn't, it, it, there's no end to it. Take comfort knowing that you win, that in the end, you win, we win, and the devil will lose. So whatever you're going through today, don't give up. Keep running the race and keep the faith. And keep Amber and Kyle in your prayers. Let's pray. Father, there's so many things we don't understand. There's so many things that we don't get, not only about the scriptures and why you do things the way that you do. But we don't understand some of the things that happen in our own lives. Father, we take comfort knowing in times like these, we take comfort knowing that your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We take comfort knowing that you are in control that you have not lost control, no matter how out of control our lives may be, we take comfort knowing that you are in control. Lord, we lift up Amber and Kyle to you. And God, we pray that you would minister to them and provide for them. Lord, we pray for Amber's biopsy this Friday, that the results would come back and it would be something that they can deal with. We pray that it's not cancer. We pray that it's not malignant, whatever it is. We pray that whatever it is can be removed. In fact, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would remove it, that you would shrink it, that you would heal it, that you would make it go away. And Lord, we pray for Kyle. How will you touch his body and allow him to get the lung transplant that he needs so that he can be with his family for a long, long time. And Father, for both of these families, more than anything else, when they don't understand what's going on, help them to trust 
in a God who is in control. Help them to trust in a God who is worthy. Help them to trust in a God who is great. And may they be comforted in knowing that in the end, they win. In fact, God, will you do that for all of us? Whatever it is that people in this room are going through, remind us, God, that we can trust you even when we don't understand. And thank you, Lord. Thank you so much that that day is coming when Satan and all of his demons will be gone and we can live in glory with you. Thank you for that promise, God. We hold on to that with everything that we have. Until then, help us to keep running the race. Help us to keep fighting the good fight. Help us to keep the faith. So thank you, Father. We love you so much. Thank you that we win. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.